Ash Wednesday is one of the times uh, that I feel, I feel this often, but I feel gratitude for being part of a liturgical church where I don't have to think up what it is we might do on Ash Wednesday. This is a good time. I do it every year to remind us of something called Baumstark's Law. Anton Baumstark was, now I don't know whether it's fashionable now to refer to, to people as Orientalists, but he was one in the 19th century, famous in Germany, and he was a liturgical scholar, and he said at the most solemn and holy times of the Christian year, the most ancient practices are observed. So it's worth pointing out that what we're doing at this liturgy is very old. We got some of it from our dear friend Egeria, or her name may be Etheria. She was um, a nun in Gaul, and she made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in about the th sometime in the mid-300s, and she kept a diary. And it's called Egeria's Travels. I have a copy of it. And in there she went and she looked at, at the Jerusalem church and saw what they did liturgically. And she wrote it down. And so a lot of things that have been incorporated into the liturgical renewal over the last 40 years in the Western churches uh, are attributable to uh, Etheria's keen observation. Three major themes are given to us on Ash Wednesday that will reproduce themselves in some form over the next 40 days in Lent. And these themes are repentance, reconciliation, and the cultivation of godly motives. And all three of these themes are part of the, from the readings that we read today the reading from Joel, the reading from 2 Corinthians, and the reading from Matthew's Gospel. Joel reminds us of the importance of repentance in two ways. The need for us to repent. Father Thomas Keating would say, uh, Ash Wednesday and Lent is a time to think about changing the direction you're looking for happiness. And so the repentance that we talk about, and I've mentioned often, is both the internal resolve to in some way uh, affect our mental, emotional, and spiritual states, to uh, turn around and look at our life in a new way, and to make that interior resolution. And in the New Testament, we hear the word epistrophe, which is to do that, but also to say, how do I now put it in my hands and make it manifest uh, not only to myself, but to those uh, that I'm in relationship with. How do I make a difference in the world? But also, certainly in Joel and in other places in the Hebrew Bible, there's always held out the possibility that God will repent himself. This uh, may cause people great difficulties who have uh, um, a firm belief in God's sovereignty. But it seems to me that there's more than one case where uh, people who've pulled their socks up, as they used to say, find that God decides not to do what he had resolved to do. Because he saw that there was some honoring of the 
reciprocal nature of God's relationship to the creation that he made and called good. The affirmation that you and I have a role to play and that we have a part to play in God's plan for the cosmos and what we do makes some difference. So I'm mentioning this now not to get into the fever swamps of works righteousness or faith in works and any of that, but merely to say, you know, uh, when you think about a compassionate God and a God who is capable of unconditional forgiveness, love, and acceptance, uh, our response to that is an important thing. And in a way, what we read in Joel has something to do with that. And it sets us up. It's a kind of predicate for the season, isn't it? That repentance is an important thing to do, not just in Lent, but for some reason, this is the time of year when it has a particular intensity. You know, uh, we're in the first cycle liturgically of, in the history of the uh, Christian year. We just finished cycle two in terms of development, which is Advent, Christmas, Epiphany. And now we're in Lent, Easter, and Pentecost. And so this is the first post that was put in the liturgical year um, a long, long time ago, even before Egeria. And so the preparatory season that we're beginning now called Lent was a time when those who were prepared for baptism on Easter, the only time anybody ever got baptized, that they were doing now the, the, the final work to come now to being initiated and welcomed into the body of Christ. And as we had our lived experience pastorally, Christian people who were already baptized began to say, you know, we'll use this time ourselves to reflect on the promises that we have made at our baptism. And as the church began to live and experience the, the realities and the vagaries of the people who were part of the church, they realized that there were some serious issues that needed to be addressed about behavior. And the need for repentance and penitence came into the picture. Once you get Constantine in the fourth century, everybody gets baptized in the Roman Empire. And so now we're not uh, use, having adults only become baptized. We've got children and everybody in, right? So we start to focus on the sinfulness and the penitence. I hope that never disappears completely. But the importance of the relationship between that kind of self-examination and reflection and the balance that is necessary with the promises that were made and the benefits that are received by the sacramental life and by your baptism are also part of this season. And so it's been a wonderful part of the liturgical renewal that we have once again uh, placed in front the importance of not merely focusing on the minutia of what it is that we have done wrong Oddly enough, in liturgical churches, which have at least some theory or doctrine of the church and its importance, got into a kind of a uh, hamster wheel of self-examination over the centuries that turned out not to be always productive. So without being uh, too giddy about all this, it is important that we think about the balance between the two things. You know, it's not just about giving up stuff or taking stuff on or engaging in an overly scrupulous self-examination. 
You may not know this, but a confessor gets trained to know uh, uh, scrupulosity is a sin. It's a sin, and you should confess it. If you're going over and over and over stuff and not letting it go, you need to deal with it. This is a good time to do that. So repentance is important at the heart of our self-understanding, but it always needs to be a reflection on this and in terms of our relationship and our desire to respond to the divine initiative begun in us at our baptism and the presence of the spirit that dwells in each human person, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. I'm very sorry that in the epistle for tonight, they don't begin it where I think it ought to begin in 2 Corinthians, because the sentence just before Paul speaks now uh, in 2 uh, Corinthians, it said, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. It is my second favorite quote in the Bible, next to looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, as it says in the epistle to the Hebrews. So you and I, during the great 40 days of Lent, maybe could do a little thinking about what is the nature of our ambassadorship and within the limits and constraints of, of the busyness of our lives and limited circumstances or unlimited circumstances, what is it that we should be doing to be ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us? And it says, as Paul goes on, that we become now the ministers of reconciliation. We are the people that seek in some way to bring some species of wholeness, a certain roundness to human relationship, a certain health to human relationship, a certain fidelity to the mission of the church, which is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ, and that we can do some checking on how we're doing with regard to that as we live as persons. I've said to you many times to be too concerned with the necessity to be heroic in your Christian endeavor can be an absolute killer in terms of letting you practice it at all. And even professional Christians like me get uh, hung up in that all the time, all the time. So being a reconciler is part of the Lenten journey. Finally, we read from Matthew. I think no other gospel writer uh, has Jesus uh, focus in the way that is, he does in Matthew's gospel on our motives, on the internal, mental, emotional, and spiritual processes that uh, govern us on a regular basis. All the people who have, I've never been able to understand, we've got a lot of hysterical writers like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and a lot of people these days who are, who are talking about, you know, believing in cloud cuckoo land things and all this invisible stuff. Well, if you wake up every morning, have you ever thought to yourself how much your thoughts and your feelings govern everything you do that day? You can't see them. They're invisible. But they have enormous power. So Jesus is concerned, of course, about corrupt motives. 
And I'm not so sure that any of us always know whether our motives are corrupt or not. Father Thomas Keating says that the location for spiritual progress is around three energy centers, which he refers to as our emotional programs for happiness, around security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. Now, you know, all of those things are important for human beings to get right. We need to survive. We need to be secure. We need to have the right sense of self in order to be healthy people. We need to know what is self and what is not self. We need to uh, learn to hold in some balance our yearning for affection and esteem and know at the same time that um, in some ways the world revolves around positive strokes and that it is a good thing to affirm people as we live. And it's also true that uh, many of us are vested with various species of power and control and how do we use those that are given to us in big and small ways. I don't know about you, but my experience in my own family has been there are some pretty minor players who have exerted enormous power and control because everybody let them do it, right? And so how do we begin to understand uh, working with that? And am I using my own power and control for those purposes? I, learned, so I do most of the cooking at home because I like it. It's a hobby. And one of the things that I learned about it when I started doing it all the time was that I now have absolute control over the menus. <laughs> you understand? My wife Nancy said when she was a little girl, she said to her mother once, you know, Mom, I would love, why don't we try eggplant? She looked at Nancy and said, oh, well, eggplant, you know, that has absolutely no food value at all. <laughs> and she said it wasn't until I became an adult woman that I copped to the fact that my mother didn't like eggplant. <laughs> now, that may seem trivial. But that's the location for a lot of ordinary and commonplace living, isn't it? And this is a time, without becoming overly scrupulous, as I mentioned earlier, when we might be concerned about corrupt motives uh, as we live our life in big and small ways. It's always extraordinary, isn't it, that we have the Ash Wednesday liturgy, and every year we read from Matthew's Gospel where Jesus is condemning, uh, disfiguring your faces and acting like a hypocrite. And in a few minutes, those of you who wish to will come up and receive ashes on your forehead. First of all, you should know that ashes are not a sign of fasting. They're a sign of repentance. So Jesus uses that in, in that particular context. But I have to say personally, without appearing too cynical, that none of us are in any danger of demonstrating to the wider culture on a daily basis an overweening pietism. <laughs> Me included, right? 
So the, so the whole idea about this is, is, you know, needs to be kept in perspective. Because what is the Savior talking about? He's talking about cleaner motives than we had before and so on. And I have to tell you also that as a pastor for many years, I am surprised at how righteous people feel about things that really they don't have any justification to feel righteous for. I just have to put it out there at the group level. You know, the little humility may be a good thing. And remember what the medieval theologian said about humility. It is knowing yourself. Having the right kind of self-knowledge. So as we continue with these great 40 days, uh, think about repentance being an instrument of reconciliation and uh, working on your motives. All through this process, you and I are blessed by the presence of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us, a God who will never leave and is always faithful and who unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. Amen.